Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Welcome to this month's mailbag episode, where we answer your questions. Our first question is from Dana. Um, my name is Dana, and my husband and I are living in Canada, and we're currently um, on a waiting list uh, to adopt. Uh, we are open to children under six, sibling pairs, and children with various degrees of substance exposure. What I'm finding at this point is just we are very excited and wanting to make sure we're as prepared as we can be. And so I find myself uh, listening to a lot of resources, trying to educate myself on a lot of different situations, as well as make sure making sure that my husband and I are doing our own work. Uh, to ensure that we're ready to provide the best home we can. Um, I am starting to find it a bit overwhelming to prepare for all of the different situations that may arrive at our doorstep. And so I was just wondering if you had any suggestions as to what kind of balance you would suggest in regards to providing education for ourselves, as well as doing our own work and making sure that we're also taking time to live our lives. Well, first of all, Dana, I think it's great that you're thinking ahead and doing so much prep work. I certainly didn't even know to do all that prep work when we were preparing for our adoptions. I think what I heard you say in all of that really is how do we balance all that we feel like we need to do before we get a placement and how do we also keep living our lives and not be completely consumed? Something that you mentioned, you know, you and your husband doing your own work is probably honestly what I would prioritize because we you're right there are a million different scenarios that we could prepare for and we can't be prepared for them all but i think when we are really anchored well in our own nervous systems you know we talk so much about that even in preventing blocked care then that gives us the ability to stay in our thinking brain and our creative brain for whatever circumstance comes along um, and i would say that's probably more important than trying to prepare for every specific scenario. Yeah. And I would add to that. This is an opportunity to really not only nurture yourselves and care for your own nervous systems, but nurture your marriage. And just remember that when you get this placement, this child, these children, time for each other is going to be much harder to find. And no matter how intentional you are, depending on the needs of your kids, it can be hard to find people that take care of them. And so I would do the things that you think you want to do. Like if you're thinking, well, our fifth anniversary is next summer. So next summer we should go on a special trip. Maybe you should do it sooner because who knows what the needs of your kids are going to be and whether you're actually going to be able to take that trip. Or if you have family that you are really wanting to visit or things, I would do those things and just prepare to sort of clear your calendar and really give a lot of space for um, adjusting to life with new children. So yeah, make time for the things that you're thinking you want to do in the next year or even two. And also there are a lot of practical things you can prepare to in your home and in your life. And we did two episodes quite a while back. Episode 41 is mentally preparing basically for adopting and fostering and episode 42, which is more about the practical aspects like decluttering your home and just all these different kinds of things. So you might want to go back and listen to those two episodes. 
I happen to think they're really good and they're really packed with great ideas of things you can do while you're waiting and preparing. And we'll have the links for both episode 41 and 42 in the show notes of today's episode. Our next question comes from Glenda. Hi, Melissa and Lisa. I have a question about our 19-year-old daughter. She no longer lives at home. Been a really hard last few years and she ditches us regularly. She'll ditch us for days, weeks, sometimes even months. We won't really hear from her at all. Don't see her really aren't a part of her life. Explain to us how she does that to us. And yet she can jump into the deep end with people that she's known for five minutes, people that she meets at the bar, people that she meets on social media, literally strangers. She dumps right in. They become her ride or die. They're her everything, her top priority. She just goes all in with them. She knows nothing about them. And yet we're the people who have stood, you know, alongside her all this time through everything. And yet in our view, we get treated so horribly. We get dismissed by her, ignored, rejected. And yet these virtual strangers become her everything. They don't typically last very long. Most people don't stick around with her for more than two or three months, but nonetheless, she keeps diving right in with them and they just take over everything. So please help us make some sense of this. It's super hurtful, frustrating, disappointing. You understand. Thank you so much for your help. I look forward to uh, getting some insight. Glenda, I just want to Take a moment to pause and acknowledge how painful this is. And it is also very, very common. So I'm guessing that many people listening right now are thinking, yes, this is what I'm experiencing. Why does my child choose these other people over me when I'm the one who's been here and I'm the one who's loved as faithfully as I can? And so I just want to say, yes, I understand how painful that is. And I think it really comes down to with many of our kids that because of all the broken attachments and loss in their lives, their hearts are always yearning for love. They're yearning to be filled. And I think there's something that happens when they make a connection with somebody who has not parented them, who's never had to do the hard things, none of the guidance or boundaries or limits or any of those things that we have to do as parents. And they meet somebody who they think is going to pour that love in and fill some of that deep, empty well that they have. And so they very quickly connect. It's almost like they, they're trying to form an attachment, you know, and they very quickly connect. And often they'll just like take and take and take and take. And then the person burns out and separates from them. And so then they go through this big loss again, because they feel like they've lost somebody who loved them. I have just found in my own life that I try to take every opportunity to be faithful in loving to the best of my ability and to the the degree to which my child will receive it. If my child is receiving care, and we're talking teens and young adults here, if my child is choosing to receive love, care, attention, affection from someone else, I'm still the safe haven that he or she can come back to. I'm still here. I'm still going to be faithful. I'm going to be solid and when everybody else fades away or a real crisis happens or a holiday comes around and all those people who've acted like family aren't really family, we're still here. You know, we're still here to faithfully love and be family to our kids. I also know that it stinks to be treated that way. 
it's not an unusual situation. And so I don't know if that helps you, Glenda, on any level to know that you're not alone in this. I know for me, that helps me understand, oh, it's probably not about me. Like this is actually a, a fairly typical behavior, I would say, among young adults who have early adversity, who have attachment challenges. I don't know what age your daughter came into your family, but I would say it's especially prevalent in situations where kids came to their adoptive families as older children. I think that a lot of times our kids, and this is was explained to us by our therapist when we were going through a similar situation, that a lot of times our kids need a concrete scapegoat to kind of place a lot of the hurt that they experienced in their childhood, that they may not have a concrete place to put that on. Like in our case, our kids you know, changed countries when they came into our family. They don't have a lot of living relatives. And so there's no like concrete person to put place kind of blame on for all of their adverse experiences and, and their hurts and their grief. And we're a safe place to do that. So we often, I think we collectively as adoptive parents often become the scapegoat for a lot of hurt. And then that allows our kids to go and look for look for the best in other relationships which is like incredibly hurtful i also think there's a honeymoon period to every relationship almost i know there are honeymoon periods in a lot of our adoptions so you mentioned that these were short-lived relationships and so it's kind of like she's hopping from honeymoon to honeymoon with all of these these people and like lisa said you know you're the one who's consistent and we've experienced with our kids as they've gotten older they've um had gotten a little bit more life <laughs> under their belts that they do start to appreciate the consistency and the stability that we offer when they've been chasing kind of this elusive belonging feelings of love affection all of those things in lots of other places um that they do appreciate this kind of consistency, the fact that we were true to ourselves as parents. And then I think the other part I would add to that, I wish I had known more about this when we were going through this, but all this work that we've done around blocked care, I think also has shown me that, you know, it's hard to be in this kind of scapegoat position, the, the one who's getting the scraps of our kids' attention and affection, and maybe sometimes even worse than that, like, the only way I know how to not fall into blocked care for that. And I did with some of our kids who rejected us. Like I got to the point where I was like, fine, like you reject us, we reject you. <laughs> we have to taking care of our own nervous systems really well when we're in this cycle and this kind of rejection with our kids in order to remain the safe haven that they're going to need at some point and they probably it probably won't come with some big grand apology or how they've been wrong all these years they might just come kind of sliding back in and hoping to be included like you know everyone else or like they have been in the past and you might feel like i don't know if i'm ready to have you back and so i think our jobs as parents to the best of our ability i think for the sake of kids who are acting this way because of no fault of their own, because of their own experiences, need us 
to do our work so that whenever they do are ready for connection, that we are ready to accept their bid for connection um, and not react kind of out of that blocked care space, which is like, you know, oh, now you want to connect, um, you know, which is so easy as human beings to fall into. Is your adoption journey turning out differently than you imagined? You had so much love to give, but now you feel ashamed and bewildered by your lack of compassion. You may be experiencing blocked care, a self-protective mechanism in your nervous system that makes it difficult to connect with your child and maintain compassion. When this happens, it's like your heart seems to have left the relationship. But the good news is you are not a bad parent. You can heal from blocked care and compassion can be rekindled in your heart. This episode is sponsored by our book, Reclaim Compassion, the Adoptive Parent's Guide to Overcoming Blocked Care with Neuroscience and Faith. This practical and powerful guide offers a simple step-by-step process for reclaiming compassion for your child and yourself. Included in the book is a blocked care assessment, which is now free to you, our listeners. You can take the assessment at reclaimcompassion.com slash assessment. This question comes from Claire. How do I help my spouse with blocked care or compassion fatigue? Claire, first of all, I want to say that I really appreciate you asking this question because I think it's a question that many, many of our listeners have. Like if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been hearing us talk about blocked care, or if you have read Reclaim Compassion or something, you can recognize the signs of it in yourself, in your spouse. And so you're potentially quite aware of it, whereas your spouse may not have ever even heard of blocked care. They have no frame of reference. They may just know that they feel crummy as a parent and they really don't want to be doing it anymore. And it feels too hard and all of those things. I guess the first thing to ask is, are you also in blocked care? Are you experiencing blocked care? And so you're recognizing recognizing it in your spouse, because if that's the case, then you can come to it sort of from a place of, wow, I am really seeing this in myself. And I wonder if you'd like to read this book with me, if we should start doing some of the things recommended in this book to care for our nervous systems together. If you are not in black care and you're in a pretty healthy space, or if you were and you're working your way out of it and back to a healthy space, then I think one of the best things you can do is just maybe make a lot of gentle mentioning of things, you know, because the one thing we do know is that when people are in block care and even when they don't know what it is, they often just feel a lot of shame because they feel like the worst father in the world or the worst mother in the world, you know? And so we don't really want to put a label on our spouse and say, Hey, I think you're in block care, but maybe just to introduce it through normal conversation and then make lots of space for them to begin caring for their nervous system by personality, neither my husband or I do well when someone, you know, kind of tells us what we should be doing, even if it's helpful, you know, even if we can come back around months or years later and be like, oh, yeah, I probably should have done that thing. I think, first of all, is validating what you see his experience to be, even if it's not yours, right? So, man, it must feel really crappy to be treated by the kids that way or 
that was probably a really hard day. You know, and again, it, the language that you use is going to depend on whether or not you're also in blocked care, if you have been in blocked care. I think if you are in a good space, the way that this would work in our marriage the best, I think, is to just give space and suggestions for nervous system care. Like for my husband, it would be like me saying, you know what, why don't you take this weekend and go fishing? Like giving him permission to go and take breaks. Or would it be helpful if I just took the kids out of the house, you know, for the day um, so you could kind of have some quiet? And it again, it depends on how your husband's nervous system is fed. But my husband's an introvert, you know, and he doesn't like the chaos and the loud and he's got sens auditory sensitivities. And so like, those are the things that I know would fill up his soul. But I think giving language to it in some way without being like, hey, dude, I think you're in block care, like that might be too direct in your marriage. But I think saying like, hey, I've been reading about some things and it makes me wonder if this thing you or we are feeling about parenting right now is blocked care. And if you don't have the book, even if you're not in block care, maybe grabbing it so that you can see what the ideas are so that you could, again, encourage him towards the nervous system care things. Like probably no husband's going to be like, no, I'm out for a weekend by myself. You know, like, so if you're encouraging the types of um, nervous system care that we talk about in the book, then you might be able to build enough margin in him to then have even an even more constructive conversation. You know, this question brought to mind something that um, we did, and I, I was thinking it was probably like 13 or 14 years ago, and we were working with this phenomenal therapist. It was before we knew about block care, before we had that language, but she was recognizing this huge degree of burnout in my husband, Russ, like he was so depleted because he was trying to support us, take care of us. He had a very high pressure career that was getting quite messed up because things were so difficult at home. That I often had to call him home and, you know, we weren't sleeping and all these things. And so he was very, very burned out. And so she recommended to us that he take a 24 hour break every, I can't remember how often now I'd have to go back and read my own blog, but she wanted him to take breaks. And I was like, I don't think I can handle him being gone any more than he already is. I mean, I feel like we're not safe things are very tumultuous. And I just was overwhelmed by the thought of it. So we did a lot of thinking and we finally came up with a way that worked for us. I'll just share it in case it puts a light bulb on for anybody else. But um, our kids were young enough that they went to the, the most challenging children went to bed on the early end. And so what we would do is he would come home from work, we'd have dinner he always put the kids to bed for decades. He put the kids to bed. And so he would go through the normal nighttime routine and put them to bed. And then once they were in bed, he would leave and he would go out in the woods and there was a, a place he could go and he would take no, no technology with him. Of course, he did have his phone, but there was not really great service there. It was more for emergencies. He'd take like his Bible and a book and things like that. And he would go there and spend the night. and. When the kids got up in the morning, they were used to him working long hours. So they just assumed he'd already left for work. And I did not say anything. I would, if they'd ask, I'd say, Oh yeah, dad's not here. And so he'd leave. Everybody would get up in the morning. It would be like dad was just at work and then he'd be home by dinner. And so it really did not rock the kids world at all. And it really worked well for me. It brought my anxiety down about him being gone, but it was 
incredibly restorative for him. I think it it speaks to the fact that if our partner is really struggling, we may have to get really creative to help them, but we want to be as loving as we can and see that they have a need that needs to be met in order to help them be the parents that they want to be. Our last question today comes from Danielle. How do you help a kid who needs a lot of choice and control in order to feel safe, use that control wisely? I have a kiddo with suspected FASD who really struggles to learn from natural consequences. He will make the same mistakes in the same situation over and over and over again. However, this is also a child with very high anxiety, and that anxiety is helped by allowing him to make choices. However, often the choices that he makes are not really beneficial to him, and he ends up suffering for those choices, but then going back into the same situation and making the same choice he made in the first place. What kind of guidance can you give about how to set him up for more success and to help him grow in his decision-making skills when he doesn't seem to remember the cost of certain decisions from event to event? I super appreciate this question because I feel like she's living my life. Uh, We also have a child who was exposed prenatally. Yeah, but his ability to learn from his choices is for sure one of the parts of his brain that's impaired. There's a couple things. One is I think even when our kids don't learn from their mistakes or their choices in the way that we think they should, as in, man, I would only need to make that mistake once or maybe twice. And then I would figure out, don't make that choice again. Our kids are capable of learning, but it just takes way more repetition than we think. In low stakes situations, we are currently letting our son make a lot of mistakes in order to have that experience because not only does he not learn from those choices like we would expect him to, he also doesn't seem to learn unless he lives through those choices. And so what that leaves us with is kind of exactly what Danielle's alluding to, which is he has to kind of live through bad choices more times than the average person, which watching as a parent is is really kind of painful, right? And so I, I would say in low stakes circumstances, I would just keep giving the choices and keep letting him kind of go through that experience, but with some debriefing. So You may also want to brainstorm what are some ways that we can mark how this choice went in the past. Uh, Our son, after our road trip this summer, is really into journaling. And so um, it might be like encouraging your child to journal after a poor choice. Uh, Just even if it's just not like a super emotional journaling, but just like a, a record of like, hey, today. I had these choices and this is the choice I made. And afterwards I felt satisfied, dissatisfied, happy, sad, mad, or whatever. And you might need multiple choice there. And so you can use that if everyone's regulated when you're going to make the choice again and he's getting ready to make the same choice, you might wanna say, okay, let's just 
talk that through. Like what might happen if you make that choice? Or have you ever made that choice before? How did it go for you? Um, things like that. I do think giving choices is helpful. And depending on the age of your child, you may want to provide choices that both have pretty decent outcomes. Like, do you want ham or turkey for lunch? Right? If you know that he likes both of those, try to give the choices in the low stakes arena uh, category as much as possible so that you can uh, maybe direct the situation in higher stakes circumstances more, but you're giving choices in other places, if that makes sense. If you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, we love to hear your voice. It's so great to actually get a sense of who you are and your question. You can find the button for recording your question in the show notes for today's episode, which you'll find at theadoptionconnection.com slash 227. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. Our new Instagram handle is at postadoptionresources. Or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevier.